Welcome to Extraordinary, my retelling of the story of my almost rape and violent stabbing in 2018 from my perspective, as well as from the perspectives of some of my closest friends and family. My hope is that this story and the stories of the extraordinary people who helped me along the way will inspire a better understanding of the effects of extreme violence, PTSD, and recovery on individuals and the people supporting them. Thank you so much for listening. And you can follow along on our Instagram account, extraordinary.podcast, to see the photos, videos, and helpful resources that correspond to the content of every episode. And please, 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 if you are a survivor or someone suffering from the effects of sexual assault, violence, or PTSD, take care while listening. Hi, welcome back. Um, So this is part two of um, episode five. And in this episode, I want to first take you through um, putting language to some of the things that I was experiencing in my PTSD, Um, just giving them names uh, to better understand or for anybody that, that is experiencing something that they don't really understand. Um, and then I want to take you through the phone call to, with the detective and what that was. And then, um, towards the end, I, I want to take you through kind of where, where things started to turn for me, um, and how I was able to start to really get myself back. So in the last episode, I really detailed out a lot of the um, symptoms that I was experiencing in my PTSD at this point, which was about, um, I'd say like six to seven months after the attack, um, which was kind of the pinnacle of all these things happening. And I wanted to bring my mom back because she was not in Los Angeles um, for those months Um, but she did come back, um, late in the summer and she talks a little bit about me coming back to Wisconsin and also what it was like to try to be so far away knowing that I was struggling. There was sometimes when I, like when I, when I wasn't there and you were feeling really bad, sorry, I'm just going on another topic again but um when I wasn't able to be there with you and I knew you were going through hard times this is I'm talking summer you know um you had your second surgery in August I don't know if it was before or after that that you seemed really bad but I remember one time you came home and you were like wearing all black and usually you kind of like dress up more. You didn't hardly bring any clothes along, you know, different outfits for when you were home. And it's, it was just like, I knew, and also from talking to you, and sometimes you didn't answer your phone, and then I'd panic. And there was so, so many hard days. I even like had a calendar, bad day, you know, good day, bad day. Because I, 
it was awful if you didn't answer your phone and it was awful for me. Um, and sometimes you didn't. So everybody that goes through stuff like this and or is depressed, um, yeah, please answer your phone. Let your mom know you're okay. Got that in. <laughs> I think that's an important one. It is. So at this point, I, you know, I was having trouble taking care of myself and I was falling deeper and deeper into this, this hole that I felt like I, I couldn't get out of. And, um, I was avoiding contact with people. I was really, really isolated, um, and really pushing people away. Okay. This isn't sustainable. Not mm-hmm. the way you were living. No. Not the way we were, you know, coming over all the time. Because, like, even I remember a night where you and the other women that I was close with reaching out to one of you, and I hadn't cleaned. I hadn't taken the dog out. I hadn't showered. I hadn't eaten. And immediately three of you came in, and one started washing the dishes. I wasn't there. I was oh, out of town. Oh, so it was three others. It was the other ones, yeah. It was the other ones. And they came in and it was like one tended to every need. Like one made sure I started eating. One started putting my hair up in a ponytail. I think one of them made you get in the shower. I think one of them made me shower and they took care of the dog. Yeah. But it was like I was non-functioning. Mm-hmm. It, but it wasn't an every night thing. It wasn't even an every week thing. It was like every few weeks you'd have a really bad day or night and then you know one of us would stay with you and I remember you telling me too that because through doing therapy I know that um being held was still is like very precious to me and I remember you saying that one night or multiple nights it was one night one night that I let that guard down enough to... Like, you were in like a dead sleep. Cuddle onto you. Or like, you were in a dead sleep. And I also, during that time, was always sleeping in the guest room. And then that night, you asked me to sleep in your bed. I did. And then I woke up and you snuggled up on me like I was a giant boyfriend. <laughs> so I had you like under one arm and you slept on my chest. And I was like, what? Because I am not a touch person. I know. <laughs> But that, I like, I know you, we've talked about too, like how I had a really hard time asking for help. Me, even the idea of me asking you to sleep in my bed with me at this moment, I'm like, that's 400,000 miles away from what I would be comfortable doing. Yeah. You know, just because I hate asking for help. So for me to say like, can you come lay in my bed? Yeah, I think, yeah, it was, there were so many circumstances where you refused to ask for help and things would get so bad, you know, then I'd show up and be like, why didn't you call me like three days ago? And it it happened so many times that like, I tried to be really good about checking in, but you also wouldn't tell me if things were wrong. I want to 
read a couple of snippets from an interview with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote uh, The Body Keeps the Score, which is a book that I'll be uh, recommending on my pod, the podcast account, um, extraordinary.podcast, um, and a book that meant a lot to me, um, and I know a lot of other people um, in my recovery. But uh, in this interview, the interviewer asks, how do you define trauma um, to Dr. Vanderkolk? And he says, trauma is an experience that basically leaves people stuck in a state of helplessness and terror. Um, The interviewer asks, what causes trauma? Um, The doctor says, horrifying experiences. Um, Essentially, it's a situation characterized by the inability to take the actions necessary to protect yourself. Trauma is about being in a state where you feel that nothing you can do can stop what's happening to you. The interviewer asks a question that I think is really interesting. Don't we all have some level of trauma? Um, Because, you know, we do. Um, And he responds with, bad things happen to us all, but hopefully with time you're able to resume your life and develop new interests. Having PTSD is a different issue because you start doing irrational things or behaving in ways where you don't fully live in the present. This makes other people respond with, how can you become this upset or this angry or this freaked out about a minor issue? The reason is that your brain has changed and causes you to interpret minor things as a threat to your very existence. One of the most difficult parts of being a traumatized person is that your behaviors annoy or frighten the people around you and make you feel ashamed of yourself. Trauma survivors need help regulating those reactions. Yelling at people to stop feeling that way or trying to talk them out of it does not work. Um, and I'll go back to this interview uh, in a little bit because there's a little bit, it, it's a, a nice summation of some of the things that he touches on in that book that I mentioned. Um, but I, I, this is a little bit longer than a typical PTSD definition because I I find myself and I found myself at the time not really understanding or resonating with with having PTSD even after you know what happened to me which was a hugely a huge moment of upheaval and fear um but I I didn't identify with it because I I just thought that it was what you Google and it was something that causes flashbacks and nightmares, which people do have, but that wasn't what I was feeling. And I felt like a lot of the definitions that I found from really reputable sources seemed to categorize it. And I think this is probably an antiquated way of looking at mental health in general, but categorize it as dependent on someone's temperament which I took issue and take issue with because it makes it feel like it should if you're strong enough it's something that you won't get which is not true and what I really loved about reading um, Dr. Vanderkolk's book The Body Keeps the Score is that it's not a top-down approach. Um, it's not like a cognitive understanding of, you know, talking to someone and 
them experiencing PTSD and what that manifests as and someone making an assessment, it's, it's, the book is incredibly involved in the science of, of the brain functions and different parts of your brain that change through trauma and really have nothing to do with temperament or who you are or your gender. Um, just they happen. And like I said at the end of the last episode, it was around this time, I think late July or August, that I got a call from the detective. And it was out of the blue. Um, and he called me and said he was in the car with another detective and he was on his way to interview a new witness. And what he could tell me at the time was that someone who was acquainted with my attacker had spoken to him and had written in a six-page letter to the DA's office. And he had told them things having to do with my case. And he couldn't tell me what was in the letter or what was said. Um, but he asked me, uh, three questions. The first question was, did I know who Nipsey Hussle was? And I was really confused by that. It was when Nipsey was still alive, but I, I said, I know who that artist is. Um, but that's the extent of, of, I don't know him. Um, the next question he asked was, had I been to a party in the neighborhood that night? And I said, no, I hadn't. And the third question he asked was, had I been to Phoenix, Arizona? And these three questions obviously all sound so disconnected from each other. So I was so confused. But I told him I hadn't been to Phoenix, Arizona. I had in 2011 with an ex-boyfriend who I moved out to California with been to visit his family in a really small town in Arizona, but I couldn't remember the name of it, but I told him it was something like Happy Arizona. And he hesitated for a second, and then he said, okay, well, why don't you think about it and call me if you think of anything else? So I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it and went through so many different scenarios in my mind of what these questions could mean. And I, that evening, I drove to the movies, which was what I did almost every night. And I went to the movies and I came out and I sat down at this little wine bar that the, they had outside of the movie theater. Um, and I started Googling my attacker's name. And I Googled it and nothing really came up, you know, articles about the attack. Uh, but then I Googled his name and Phoenix, Arizona. And Google popped up with a couple addresses. Um, one address in Los Angeles from 2012 up to the present, which was then 2018. And one address in Surprise, Arizona. 
So by this time, it was pretty late at night, but I texted the detective. I figured it out. I figured it out. It's not happy Arizona. It's surprise Arizona. It was 2011. And I just started verbal vomiting while text vomiting all of this information to him. And he said back, he said, okay, um, I wanted you to come to it on your own. Let's talk about it tomorrow. Um, and we did. He, I I talked to him on the phone and gave him all the information that I had, all the contacts that I had in Surprise, Arizona. And he said he would let me know what he found from the investigation, but that I still could not know um, the contents of that letter. So I wanted to do a quick run through of some of the things that I was explaining in the last episode and give names to them in case someone is experiencing something similar or the same thing. Um, and so something I was talking about in the last episode was, um, fight or flight responses and fight or flight is our response to a traumatic event. Like I explained, our, our bodies want to, want us to fight to get out of it, or they want us to run to get out of it. Um, and there's also a third called freeze, um, which is, you know, fight or flight, our bodies go into hyperdrive and our adrenaline, our adrenaline kicks in and time slows down and we become a lot stronger than we normally would be, um, a lot faster than we normally would be. And freeze, which is the third, is kind of the opposite. Um, it's when our bodies perceive that we can't fight our way out of something or run our way out of something. Our bodies kind of go into a catatonic state and everything, even our heart rate slows down, our breathing slows down. And I've heard a lot of other survivors describe um, kind of floating out of their body and watching themselves um, and feeling almost like another self or another character in what's happening, um, which is just another way for our minds to get through something that there is no fighting and there is no escaping. Um, something that I experienced and that I described in the last episode is, um, something called dissociation, which is somewhat similar to freeze. And that is to disconnect from your thoughts, feelings, and memories, and your sense of identity. Dissociation can become kind of a, a living state for people that are living with PTSD and, and severe trauma in that some of the things I was describing, like not being able to recognize yourself in the mirror or um, feeling like the world isn't real, those things are called, um, within dissociation, they're called depersonalization, which is not being able to recognize yourself or feel connected to yourself or your sense of identity, and derealization, which is not being able to understand um, or believe that that the world around you is real. And what's interesting to me about that is from that same interview that I was reading from with Dr. Vanderkolk, 
um, the the writer of this summation of the book says that in brain scans of 18 chronic PTSD patients, researchers discovered something startling. There was almost no activation of the self-sensing areas of the brain when compared to non-traumatized subjects. The medial prefrontal cortex, the anterior cingulate, the parietal cortex, and the insula were dark. Their conclusion was that in response to their trauma, and in coping with the dread that persisted long afterward, that these patients had learned to shut down the brain areas that transmit the visceral feelings and emotions that accompany and define terror. So in this next clip, my friend Meg is going to describe a moment um, from around this time that is an example, I think, of dissociation. I came over one time and you um, were like really confused about what had happened the night before. And you said you blacked out. I think like, like PTSD blacked out, not like alcohol. And you woke up and at in your apartment and then you like went down and checked your car and there was a McDonald's bag with like some person's name scribbled on it and like a number and it was like you had no recollection of going there, of eating food, of meeting whoever put their name on that bag. And that was scary because I didn't know that you were going out on your own or you know besides like driving to therapy but like drinking or having like an episode and going out um yeah really the only thing I did that I remember was go to the movies I would almost every night drive to the movie theater that was it you had gone to the movies and then you went to drive home and blacked out and woke up the next day and found this McDonald's bag in your car with some strange person's name on it and I think it wasn't just like a number I think it was like a weird scrawled note of like nonsense and I was like what did it say and you're like I don't remember I was like where's the bag and you're like I threw it away and I'm like what something that was like directed at me like so nice meeting you or something like yeah and it it just felt like it was so scary because it was like some of these times when you would like blackout during an episode, you would have encounters that were putting you in really dangerous situations. And that was so scary. And I remember around this time feeling really lost and kind of crazy. Um, Because obviously what was happening in my mind and then also what I described in the last episode, my ex-boyfriend telling me that I was remembering the past wrong and and telling our group of friends, um, including the women that were helping me, that what I was saying wasn't true. Um, So I was really recoiling because I I was starting to doubt that I 
was in control or that I was experiencing anything real. And I remember even talking to my therapist at the time and trying to explain to her something that I know and have known to be true, um, but that the the loss of that relationship with my ex, not not romantically, but just as a figure in my life at that point, and then losing so many friendships and relationships at that time was for me a secondary trauma. Um, and I remember my therapist and a lot of people at the time saying to me that I, I was conflating the, the attack with the relationships and that I was displacing my anger about what happened to me to the relationships and, um, what I should really be focused on is the attack. And I, I knew at the time how I felt and I feel the same way now that I understand my attack in a very different way that, you know, the, the concept that someone I didn't know could come into my house and want to hurt me, you know, I think there were moments in the night of the attack that I was shocked and felt betrayed, like I said, just on a human level. But in hindsight, looking back at it, the idea that a, a strange person could come into my house and want to rape me or hurt me was something that I could understand, I guess. Um, and I was able to act out on my fight or flight and punch and kick and chase and yell and scream. Um, so I had trauma specific to the attack. Uh, but that was specifically for me around violence and fear and fear of being hunted and anger. But what, what I felt about the relationships afterward and to me what felt like the secondary trauma or compounded trauma um, was I, I couldn't understand the people that I loved, um, being, being okay with letting me go when I felt so close to death and was so scared. And that, for me, was the loop that I just kept repeating because I, for me, that part, I couldn't understand. Um, something else that comes with, with, um, PTSD and trauma is hypervigilance, which in the story where I talked about um, being in my apartment and trying to stay there uh, one night and staying up all night and going through plans and thinking through all these different ways to escape or 
protect my family. It basically, to me, like, that movie, I don't, which, I don't remember which Born Identity it is. I think it's the first one with Matt Damon. When he talks about, before he remembers who he is, yes, it's the first one. He's talking to the main gal, and um, he doesn't remember who he is, but he says, but I know that the guy over here has a gun in his glove box, and this guy knows how to handle himself, and there's two exits over here, and blah, 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 blah. Basically, you feel like you're Jason Bourne all the time. Um, I'm Wherever I go, I'm always thinking about those things. And then um, headbanging or self-harm is something that occurs in people with PTSD. Um, like I described to almost kind of combat dissociation in a way to bring yourself back from not being connected to yourself. For me, it was a little bit of punishment, I think, too, that I was banging on my head because I was mad at myself and mad at my brain. Um, and I didn't know that headbanging was something that anyone else did. It, you know, it really, that was one thing that really made me feel um, scared and, and other because I, I didn't, I had heard of people cutting, um, but I'd never heard of people banging on their head. So self-harm can come in a myriad of ways. And a lot of people describe it as a way to release tension, um, and also a way to reconnect with the present moment and a sense of self. Um, obviously not a healthy way to do that, but something that a lot, a lot of people experience. Um, so then trauma recreation is, is something that I talked about that, uh, night that I drove to a bar on Pico, um, and wanted to get into a fight with someone, uh, which is something that I think is for someone who was in and, you know, was attacked the way that I was, I think is hard for people to understand why I would want to feel that way again. But um, what I'm learning is that trauma recreation is something that happens frequently with people with, with trauma, trying to create the circumstances surrounding the trauma almost in an effort to be in control um, of it or to do something differently or... For me, I remember I wanted to feel that adrenaline again. I wanted to feel alive again. Um, and I, you know, I think I also was just in a very angry place and I could not get that out in a physical way yet. Um, and that was my best guess at how to do that. Twitching is something that I described in, in a few episodes, um, which for me, um, my twitch is to pull my face to the right, which is 
something from that night. I, I, it's me, I know, pulling away from the knife and from him. Um, my other twitch is to jerk forward. My chest jerks forward, um, which is the moment that I got free and sat up in bed. So sometimes I'll pull my head to the right and sometimes I'll my chest will jerk forward. Um, I also will uh, shake my head no sometimes, which I think has to do with um, when I was begging and saying, you don't have to do this, I'm a nice person, before we fought. And also, I would, I would shake my head no when I had panic attacks um, over and over and over again, I think also as kind of a rejection of, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this reality. And then also, I'll feel in my shoulders um, the, the urge, the overwhelming urge to punch or like a tingling in my shins to kick. Um, so that night when I, I ran away from the restaurant, before I decided, well, I didn't really decide to run, it kind of just happened, but before I ran away, I remember thinking about uh, throwing my cell phone against the wall and I and punching something and I looked over and there was a couple sitting right where I was about to do that <laughs> on a date and I just then and because I couldn't do that I took off running um, I wanted to talk about oh, um, substance abuse um, so I was using alcohol um, as a way to almost kind of, to me, like substance abuse is almost like a forced dissociation um, that everything was so, I, I didn't want to be present in, in my life and my thoughts were overwhelming and the, my obsessions were overwhelming and the repeating was overwhelming and the way that I found to quiet that was to drink alcohol and drink from morning until night sometimes just to be gone um, it you know the only things I think I said in an episode that seemed to work at that time to get the thoughts to, to quiet down were alcohol and movies so I was that was my daily life. Um, and I think people with trauma um, experience high levels of addiction and substance abuse because it's it's a way to escape memories. It's a way to feel different. It's a forced way to feel anything else. Um, even if it's not a healthy long-term strategy, it is in whatever sense, um, a moment of reprieve, um, from that. And I think the, the irony of addiction and of substance abuse is that what it really does is keep you trapped in that limbo of not being able to face what you're afraid of facing or forgive what you're afraid to forgive and puts off the inevitable um, 
that you'll someday have to face. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to talk about was um, OCD, which I think for me was the biggest surprise. But um, in doing research and learning about PTSD and what I was feeling, almost a quarter of people that are diagnosed with PTSD also develop um, OCD, which is obsessive compulsive disorder alongside it. And what I've read is that there are a lot, there's a need for more studies into why that happens. Um, but anecdotally, what I can say is that I, as much as I hated the repetition, it was a little bit of an escape and it was, for me, it was something to do with control that I can't really understand, but the, the looping thoughts and the obsession and the I think it was also a lot of fear, you know, like I, I was obsessing about the thing that I feared accepting, um, which for me was the kind of secondary trauma of losing, um, you know, my per the person who was my person at the time um, and losing my friends and people around me and everything feeling all these changes happening that I didn't want to happen and all of it happening so fast. And, you know, I think I looped and looped and looped and looped and looped around that because I just, that secondary trauma, I just couldn't understand. I remember the first turning point that I had um, was I was laying in bed and I was watching a documentary. Um, and in this documentary, they read, um, a parable and the parable was about a farmer, um, who teaches us lessons about basically perspective the parable goes, and it's a Taoist parable, but it starts, um, when an old farmer's stallion won a prize at a country show, his neighbor called round to congratulate him, but the old farmer said, who knows what is good and what is bad. The next day some thieves came and stole his valuable animal. When the neighbor came to commiserate with him, the old man replied, who knows what is good and what is bad. A few days later, the spirited stallion escaped from the thieves and joined a herd of wild mares, leading them back to the farm. The same neighbor called in to share the farmer's joy, but the farmer responded, Who knows what is good and what is bad? The following day, while trying to break in one of the mares, the farmer's son got thrown and fractured his leg. The neighbor called to share the farmer's sorrow, but the old man's attitude remained the same as before. The following week, the army passed by, forcibly conscripting soldiers for the war, but they did not take the farmer's son because he couldn't walk. And the neighbor thought to himself, who knows what is good and what is bad. I remember thinking for the first time, you know, this like indignant anger that I had at what had happened to me and, you know, the things that I wished had happened 
differently. Um, the thing that popped into my mind after I heard this was one, you know, I think it's a, a lovely way of showing that in life, one thing leads to another and good things follow bad things and bad things follow good things and not always in that order. And there's almost, there's like a carefree lack of expectation in that story um, that, you know, if something bad happens to you, you're not doomed. If something good happens to you, you're not saved. Um, and I thought for the first time after hearing it, what part of you, saying this to myself, what part of you thinks that you are entitled to what you thought was fair? And maybe that sounds a little nihilistic, but it was the, the not fair that I was so stuck on, that this isn't fair. This isn't what happens. This isn't what I deserved. This isn't fair. And that was somewhere, somewhere in the core of why I was so stuck. And this parable was the first kind of seed that sprouted and started to kind of break apart that indignant anger that was that ice around my heart. Um, and I think looking at my life and looking at the world differently in that I have to accept that something happened to me that was not part of my plan. I have to accept that something happened to me that one could look at and say was not fair. And that is kind of what life is. Is a series of occurrences and hopefully you get more beautiful ones than difficult ones. But really the difficult ones can become something really beautiful too. And it was the first time there was a, a light in my mind where I thought maybe something good can come of all of this struggle. It was this one moment where you called me and you were crying and you said it was something I don't remember if you were saying I I want to die or you know I don't want to do this anymore and instead of saying I'll be right there I said do you want me to come over and you said no I think I'm going to be okay but can I call you back if I need you to you know, I was like, absolutely. And I hung up the phone and my boyfriend's already standing up, like, let's get that bag ready, you know? And I was like, she said she didn't need me. And it felt like this, like, it was like, it really was a turning point 
and I never had to do a, an emergency like overnight after that. And I would never lie and say that after I had that realization that everything got better after that because recovery is nonlinear and I think we all know that you know you can know exactly what you need to do and not be able to do it or take two steps forward and then two steps back um so I was I was starting to what I would later learn is reframe um what I was experiencing into a way to look at myself in a different light that I was exceptionally strong for having lived through this or that I was going to be able to connect with other people in a different way after having gone through this. Um, but I was still, I still had a lot of work to do. I remember you going through this, like, I know I need to do these things, but I can't get myself to do them. Exactly. And then feeling really guilty and mm-hmm. shame and so like layering on top of all the depression and overwhelmed and I can't do the things I need to do, feeling guilty and ashamed for what I'm putting my friends and family through and making them worry and then you just want to disappear even more. Yeah. And maybe yeah. no one else goes through that, but maybe they do. I bet they do. And the relationship with my ex at this point was pretty much the same. We would see each other here and there at group events. Um, We were not really speaking, but not really not speaking. My mom was sending me articles and videos and interviews um, that were about codependent relationships. Um, And I had heard, you know, people talk about codependency and narcissists before, but it just felt like kind of a blanket term that friends of mine would say about their relationships when they were mad at their boyfriends. So I didn't really take it seriously when she was sending it, but then after I started learning about it, I was realizing that I really resonated with a lot of the things that they were saying and was struggling with a lot of the things that um, someone with codependency would struggle with. So so a way that I heard it described um, is that a codependency and narcissists um, are drawn to each other like, you know, when you see someone at a party and they light up the room um, and you are magnets to each other. Um you can kind of sense in each other that you are going to get what you need. And what I struggled with at the time was that I had a very low sense of self-worth. I've always kind of struggled with that. I, I have never really, or it, I'm about to turn 37 and I'm just now doing work to try to understand what I even like. I, when I moved to LA, um, I really lacked 
confidence. I didn't, I went into every room and just like, wow, these people are so fancy. These people know everything. Everybody seems to know everything and I don't. And when I met my ex, he's so, like I said, such a gregarious, like a walks into a room and everybody, you know, he's the funniest guy and everybody's looking at him. And it was nice for me to have someone fill up all the space that I couldn't fill up myself. So all of my interests became his interests. Um, vacations and things were kind of centered around things that he liked. Um, but I just was a tag along. That was, and I was happy doing that for a while. And I remember about a year into our relationship, um, him, me, I was kind of, this kind of happens to me in a lot of relationships that I'll completely eclipse myself into someone else for the first year and then, and have no needs. And then about a year in, I'll start to kind of bubble up needs and requests. And when I do, I'm, this has happened in several relationships, um, not just that one. When I do, I'm met with surprise, frustration. Um, and I remember my ex specifically saying to me, I, I just miss my fun girlfriend. Where did my fun girlfriend go? You used to be down for everything. And narcissists, conversely, um, are just people that love being in the, taking up the spotlight and they have a hard time with empathy for other people. They, I remember my ex and I had a conversation at the beginning of our relationship. He asked me, what do you think we would break up for if, if we ever break up? And I said, um, you never do anything that you don't want to do. And he laughed and that was the end of it. But, um, he did tell me when we were dating that he didn't feel empathy, um, which I kind of laughed at and didn't really take seriously or believe. Um, but he would say it again and again and again. Uh, so when this happened, I had already been operating at a very low sense of self-worth and didn't know what I liked, didn't know what, how I wanted to dress, didn't know what I wanted to do on the weekend, didn't know what music I liked, didn't really have an identity at all. It was so intertwined um, with his and so dependent on his. And I was trying to like Bambi stand up and walk away and trying to do things that I wanted and but I wasn't doing it gracefully or elegantly or considerately um, because I was afraid. So by this time it was the fall um, and I decided that it, I needed to get a full-time job. I was freelancing, but I was 
struggling to freelance and I wanted to get a full-time job because I wanted to rebuild my social structure and have a place to go and have be a part of a a working ecosystem and not spend so much time alone and have accountability and you know have someone waiting for me every day have people need me every day and I was very nervous about getting a job I a full-time job I, I didn't know if I would be able to function in a work setting um but I started applying and I, I got a job and I remember the first couple days, I remember I sat in the, at my desk and I was so, I brought my Triscuit crackers and cheese, which was all I would eat and was twitching at my desk and thinking about running. And I just, it was maybe like day two and I was just like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, but I knew that I had to try and I kept going and, and, um, I was able to, you know, acclimate. Um, it took, it took a beat, you know, it took a minute for me to normalize, but I, I do think being around other people and having accountability and not spending all of my time alone made a huge, huge difference in my recovery. And I also met people that I'm friends with to this day and that I'll be friends with for life. So it was a, a much needed reflection of value that I still meant something and I could still mean something to other people. And that I was valuable and that I was funny and that I was fun to be around and I was worth um, caring about. So the detective was investigating the connection in Arizona, but at the same time, the lawyers were meeting and discussing the terms of potentially going to trial. And I, I remember every time I got an update, the, the tone was very, um, it, almost like a, a trial would be the worst thing to happen and that a plea deal was the best thing that could happen. And to me... I, I remember hearing something like 14 years or something, and I I thought, how is that the best thing? And I, I kept hearing that it would be so expensive and it would be so disruptive because there'd be so many people that would have to uh, be called to the witness stand and take time away from their jobs. And I, you know, I, they kept saying um, to protect me from having to testify. And there was progress happening. I know my attacker had a public defender as his attorney and they were, she was meeting with the prosecutor, the, the assistant DA who was, um, prosecuting the case. And 
it, I think around this time in the fall, um, that uh, public defender recused herself. From what I understood, something happened between uh, her and my attacker that he made her uncomfortable enough that she could not um, continue with the case. So that kind of started the clock over again. And he got an alternate public defender, um, which I, I didn't know that that was an office unto itself. Um, but I was getting frustrated because I didn't understand the process. I didn't understand what was happening. I was so frightened that he was going to get out in, because I was told that he would probably serve most likely about 80% of his sentence, 70 to 80%. So if it were something like 14 years, for example, that would mean he would get out when he was still a very young man. Um, he was 25 at the time of the attack. So I asked the, the assistant DA and the detective if I could drive to the courthouse to meet with them and talk to them about what was happening. And they said yes. So I drove down to the courthouse and met the two of them in the assistant DA's office. And I remember there were just files stacked up on her desk, um, like so much paperwork on her desk, just files, 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 files. And I told them, I want to go to trial and I hear what you guys are saying, but I, I don't get to decide this. I don't get consulted. It's not a civil case of me versus him. It's the city of Los Angeles against him. It's a criminal case. So it's not my decision and it's not something that I get to approve in any way, but I wanted it to be on record that I wanted to go to trial and I did not want a plea deal and that I would be disappointed in the outcome if, if there was a plea deal. And I told them why. And I said, I don't want the reason for this to not go to trial to be protection of me. I am ready to go testify. I have been ready to testify. I am not afraid to testify, which was a lie. I was very afraid to testify. Um, but I, there was nothing that would keep me from doing that. And I knew that I needed to do that. I, I, it just, if it were to just disappear and go away, um, and I were to never get to face him or look him in the eye or tell a courtroom what happened that night, and it just disappeared from my life, I would never feel a sense of conclusion. Um, and they understood that, and they took it to heart, which I very much appreciated. Um, I appreciated the protection and I appreciated what they said about it being, um, a huge undertaking 
to go to trial. But they they listened to me and they cared. And I feel very um, appreciative and lucky for that, um, to have those two people um, on my side. And from then on, it, the, the meetings continued and we continued to be updated um, when they would happen, but it was kind of a restart on the timer as the, the alternate public defender got up to speed. So I don't want to fast forward through anything, but I, I want to take you guys through the different things that I found over months um, and years to get out of the, the place that I was in and to recover from the PTSD that I was experiencing. Um, and everything is different for different people, and it was a slow, slow process um and these things did not come all at once and they did not all stick at once they were sometimes I would forget them and come back to them but these things I think are when I look back the things that changed my course so I think probably the first thing is building building self-esteem for, especially for someone, like I said, who was having a hard time with self-worth to begin with, but building self-esteem in little ways each day, um, little ways around the house, like doing the dishes every morning or folding laundry or taking the dog out, you know, little routines that I gave myself every day that if I did them, I would feel a little boost, like I did something good today and I can do those things every morning and if I do them I'm going to get that little boost and I can rely on that um the other thing was sitting in the sun um for me when and I I know it's hard to do if you're not living in a place like Los Angeles um because I'm from the snow so I remember uh but for me sitting in the sun if I'm having a really bad day, it, it doesn't give me a huge boost, but it gives me maybe a 5% boost, which sometimes that is the difference between being frozen and being able to step into something like a routine, um, to build self-esteem. Um, another thing is exercise. Um, and I'm kind of going from the basics into the more, uh, kind of cognitive heady stuff. But, um, for me, exercise has been probably the number one, I'd say number one, number one or number two difference in my mental health and, and my, especially my OCD. Um, when I exercise, I have to focus, um, I have to focus my mind and my body and they have to work together. I'll often notice, um, I run almost every morning. I run sprints 
I started doing this during COVID actually, but um, almost every morning I run sprints behind my house. And usually the first few sprints, I am still in my head and I'm thinking about the thing that I was obsessing about. And then by the third or fourth, I'm starting to, um, I do that thing and it sounds really cheesy. And I know I've talked a lot about movies on here, which isn't a surprise, but I do that thing from Gladiator when I'm running that he does when he steps into an arena that he touches the ground and rubs the dirt between his fingers. But I, I do it, um, to ground myself and to be, get connected to the moment, um, and to connect with the place that I'm at. And usually after that, I'll feel the sensation of the the dirt between my fingers and I'll feel the temperature of the dirt between my fingers and I'll feel the warmth of the sun and I'll feel the wind and then the obsessiveness fades it almost every single time once I start exercising and doing these grounding things um, the obsessiveness will fade away and grounding is something it's anything that you can do to get in touch with um something sensorial like touching something if you're in a place of panic or if you're in a place of anxiety or OCD looping thoughts if you can touch something cold and notice the coldness or if you can touch something scratchy like the texture of a chair and notice how scratchy it feels um something round and smooth um running the dirt through your fingers any of those things can be grounding because it's it's trying to get you connected to your senses um to kind of jerk yourself back into the present moment and to unhook what's happening in your mind by tapping into another sense of yourself um another thing with exercises I now uh, for the last year have started boxing which for me it kind of ticks every box it's not pun not intended um it's my mind is engaged my body is engaged it's a really hard workout it's a really hard mental exercise you have to push yourself it's one-on-one it's not grappling or wrestling so you have distance you have ownership of your space and then you get to punch stuff which for me is huge I love to punch stuff so boxing for me has helped me find a safe space to exercise that part of myself that's in there that still wants to fight um something that I kind of talked about um with the Taoist parable is um reframing I think that was the first time I ever reframed something uh which is basically just looking at at something that you're frustrated with or upset about or a disappointment and observing it from a different viewpoint um not necessarily trying to spin it to positive um not everything can be spun into a positive but 
looking, everything can be looked at from another angle, from another point of view. For me, it's basically like I take whatever the thing is that I'm being challenged by and I put it in the middle of the room and I walk around it and I look at it from every viewpoint. And every single time I I do that, I can find a path instead of feeling stuck or trapped or shut down. I can, if I walk around it and I look at it, there's always a path forward, um, which has immensely changed the way that I've been able to move through my life. And one place that I found that was in um, a philosophy called Stoicism, which I've shared a couple of things on the Extraordinary Doubt podcast Instagram account, quotes from um, famous Stoic philosophers. Marcus Aurelius was a Stoic philosopher. Um, you know, I think looking at our lives as as finite and as our own and all of our actions and reactions as choices um, has made a huge difference to me. For, for instance, um, obsessing on, about something that I can't change. Uh, I can't change what happened to me. I can't change that I lost people. I, and the energy that I expel thinking about that and obsessing about that and staying stuck in that and looking at it and examining it over and over and over again, it will never change that that's the truth of what happened. Um, another thing is making a list of how I'm feeling. If I'm feeling overwhelmed and like I'm going to explode or have a panic attack, um, I would do this at work a lot when I started that job. Um, I would, if I was feeling overwhelmed and like I was going to explode or do something embarrassing, I would take out my phone and I would make a list of what I was feeling because making a list for me helps me go from existing in the emotions to observing them again. Um, the act of observation instead of being overcome and driven by my emotions has made a big, big, big difference. Um, I used to have nightmares about, about waves, um, big tsunami waves. And I, I've talked to people that have said that water signifies your emotions. And so I think my whole life I've had this fear of my emotions taking over and ending everything in a huge wave, but I'll list everything out that I'm feeling. I have, and usually the list is like, I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling helpless. I'm feeling out of control. I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling worthless. I'm feeling ugly. I'm feeling broken. You know, it's all those, that soup of all those things that add up to despair or dejection. And something I learned through therapy is, um, evidence. So I'll look at my list that I've made and then I'll talk to myself and say, what evidence do you have that you're worthless? And I don't have evidence for that. <laughs> you know, I know that's not true. 
but I'm feeling it. But then this other part of me can look at it and say, but is that true? And I'll go down the list for each of those and I'll combat each of them. But I, I can't do all of that just in my mind when I'm in that state, when it's that overwhelming. I need to look at it and switch my brain function from emotional to objective and go through one by one. What evidence do I have that that is true? Um, helping someone else. I think anytime I've had the opportunity to care for or help protect or lend a helping hand or a, an ear to someone else who's struggling, it again, it's like it's the reframing of the good that's come of this attack that I I think I'm able to really slow down and listen to people and um, sit with them in places of where a lot of people would feel very uncomfortable. Um, I'm also a vigilant friend in protecting any of my <laughs> friends from danger, so be aware of that. Yeah, I think, and even this, you know, the podcast for me is a, a hope that I can take some of this and make it valuable, you know, find something good and kind in an experience that was painted in, in so much struggle. Um, and then I think the last thing, and I put it last because it's, uh, the hardest for me is, um, boundaries, boundary setting. Um, so I, I, you know, have, have done all this work on myself over the years and really tried to get in tune with who I am and what I need and build self-worth and what that means in relationships, friendships, family, my relationship with my mom, um, you know, romantic relationships everywhere. You know, right now, everywhere I look, I see how do I create boundaries here what's healthy what's not what do I need and I think that's because I'm someone who's struggled with self-worth and struggled with you know taking up any space um so for me any boundaries used to feel like um an unkindness uh and people tend to be really attracted to me that have a lot of needs so I have to be, I have to be aware all the time that I'm checking in with myself, making sure that I feel good in this interaction. If I don't, I look at why, um, and I try to mitigate where I'm connecting with people and how I'm connecting with people so that it stays healthy and safe. Know, there was a time when it was like is she gonna recover from this like will she ever be Lee again or will she live in this perpetual state of um like manic spiraling like not actually there which is a real reality like I think everyone kind of felt really from what I've gathered like 
everyone felt very relieved after the attack to see me in the hospital and kind of go, oh, she's fine. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's still Lee. She's just, she's acting kind of weird because she's on medication. Yeah. She's twitching. She's got bandages on, but she's still there. And I think from the movies and from representations of what this is like and how this happens, you think you don't, I don't think I would have realized, like you said, the timeline for me was that after the attack and being in the hospital, I had all of my love and family and support surrounding me. And as that faded, my PTSD became much more ferocious. It came, yeah, it came into full force. It's almost like, um, it's like it waited dormant until everyone left almost. I think it, it it's more like once that doctor got you off that medication, once, yeah, your family left. But I also, I think, I don't know. I think that there is a little stretch of time before. It's like when you, when the adrenaline runs out and then you feel the pain. I think it was the, the same thing of like, once your world quieted a little is when the PTSD kicked in and it kicked in hard and it was so intense and it lasted a while and I think that it was in that like towards the end of that stretch where I was having these thoughts of like is this how Lee's always gonna be like should I call her mom and talk about if this continues like, That's the long-term plan. Yeah, yeah, because I know you didn't want to move back to Wisconsin. Like you made that clear. You you've been independent forever, and you wanted to still live the life you were living before you got attacked. But your mind was so like jumbled, and yeah, it just it. It just felt like, I think it was maybe a year after the attack, I remember being with you and being like, you know, she's there, she, she's back. You know, like you still were not okay, but you had done enough therapy and you, you've gone through enough that the PTSD was, you know, this big instead of taking up the whole space. Mm-hmm. and it it was just this it went from will she ever be lee to this like nice moment of i i don't know having dinner or having a movie night and being like okay like of course she was going to come back like but how I, silly to doubt it but but think about that though that like in the depths of being with someone who's at their deepest darkest places of their mind and you're there with them, sitting with them, you're gonna get to a point where you wonder, is this, are they gonna emerge from this? Like, are they gonna be able to crawl out of this? Yeah, it felt like, okay, this isn't sustainable. So I wanted to end this episode with... um my last thoughts on what I think I took away from this time um, 
in the way that I needed help uh, from people. And I'll, you'll also hear from my mom and from my friend Meg uh, their kind of final thoughts on, on what they would like people to walk away with from this part of the story. And for me, I, it, it boils down to two words, um, patience and persistence. Um, I think if I didn't have people in my life at that time that embodied um, patience and persistence and continued to seek out whether or not I was okay, you know, I think I've been blown away by the ties um, of family and my family and how lucky I am to have them. Um, I never realized before this how much, you know, we love each other and beyond my immediate family, you know, my brothers, my mom, my dad, my step parents, um, but also my extended family, my grandmas, my aunts, my cousins, my second cousins, my great aunts, my <laughs> second, you know, third <laughs> nephews. I family is such a strong tether. Um, I've I never realized it before, but it's. I'm in awe of the way that, that my family just would not let me go. Um, and uh, friends that just would not let me go. Um, but it does, it takes a lot of strength and it takes a lot of patience and, um, not necessarily faith in God, but faith in that someone can come back. Because it is hard on the support people, too. You know? In a it different is. way. Because of the worry and feeling for you far away and kind helpless. of helpless. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, even if you didn't feel like talking or if you don't feel like talking, if you just, like, let someone know you're okay and you just need a, a day to yourself or a quiet day, a day to watch movies or something. Well, that's how I think uh, Meg and I develop a system. And you, you and I have done it a couple times, but where if I'm not answering and she's starting to worry she'll send me a certain emoji and that means I understand that you can't talk today but just let me know that you're there on the other end mm -hmm. yeah I think we finally reached that you and I but it took a long time do you have any advice for anybody who's like in the depths like that I know everyone is different but you when mean you're supporting somebody. A who's... caretaker kind of. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think I would say, I think I would say just keep showing up. I think it, it was easy to run. I think it would have been really easy to run. I think it was harder to kind of put everything else on hold to make sure that you like came through on the other side. But the showing up part, it sucked sometimes, you know? And, and there are parts that are, are great from it. You know, we developed this like crazy undeniable bond of like things that we had always had in common. We just didn't know because we weren't spending that kind of time together. And even like in the thick of it, there would still be nights when we're like watching a movie and cracking up. And, you know, it wasn't all bad. It wasn't horrible. It was just, it was scary for a lot of it. And it was time consuming and, and it was just hard. It's hard to take care of someone who has been hurt so badly. You know, it was like you're, brain was bruised or something it was it was like you were you know you were kind of this like rock thrown in the middle of the lake and then all these waves were what affected us so you know people like your mom of course like her whole world was rocked and she had to take all this time off work and, you know, she had to be away from her husband and her mom who she was taking care of. And, you know, it, it became such a focal point for me that my family would call me and go, how's Lee? You know, it was like this kind of ripple effect where it, it really, it, you know, it wasn't just us, all the girls in our group, it, it became the, the, you became the focal point of life for a, a long time. And I think for some people that's easy and some people had a much harder time with that. But I think if anyone was listening to this, looking for advice of how do I help my friend, I think it would just be keep showing up. I'm not sure why that's making me emotional. I think it's like, I, I hope someone hears this and like that's the push they need to help their friend through it. That's what I hope too. Okay, we can be done. Now, if I could give a second piece of advice off the record, it would be don't let your friend drink. <laughs> so thank you, as always, um, for listening. I know these episodes have been really long, these last couple episodes, so I really appreciate um, 
you guys for sticking through it and and listening. Um, in the next episode, I'll be kind of going through the the legal process, um, what that was like over the years, and then the trial and what that was like. Um, so again, thank you. I appreciate it so much. And, um, I appreciate you sharing the story and, um, sharing it with anyone that you think it might benefit or that you think is appropriate. Um, and I'll see you guys next week.